Um, but this morning, we start, as you've seen already, a series of messages uh, centered around Advent. Now, if you're not familiar with what Advent is, Advent, literally, that word literally means this. It means arrival. Okay, so when you hear the word Advent, that's what it means. It means arrival. And so when we celebrate the season of Advent as a church, what we're celebrating is looking back upon Jesus' first arrival as he's born of a virgin. And we're also looking forward to Jesus' second arrival when he returns as a conquering king. And so it's both and, it's not either or. Okay, that's what Advent is. Historically in the life of the church, it's a time to look back on Jesus' first arrival when he comes into human history. And it's also a look forward toward his second arrival in which he draws all of human history to its appropriate end and inaugurates the eternal age. So in reality, if you think about Advent, Advent is reminding us that all of human history is about Jesus. That all of life is about Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us this in Colossians chapter 1. Listen to what he says in verses 15 and following. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So Paul says this, Jesus made everything. It was made by Him. It was made through Him. And ultimately it was made for Him. That He might have dominion and rule over all that He has created. All of human history is about Jesus. In fact, we're told further on in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this. He says that Jesus is, in chapter 2, the founder of our salvation. In other words, He's the one who's brought salvation into existence for us in accordance with God's purposes and plans. The founder of our salvation. In Hebrews 12, we're told that He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. So all of human history is about Jesus. He's the founder of our salvation, the founder of our faith. Everything ultimately is tied up in Him. And there are many, many Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus' first arrival. We read some of them this morning in our time and we lit the Advent candle. Right? We read some of them this morning. There are many prophecies. But there's also prophecies that point not only to the founder who would come, Jesus, but also toward His forerunner, the one who would come before Him. In fact, in Malachi chapter 3, and verse 1, we read, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So before the Lord, before Jesus comes into the temple, before that happens, God says there's one who's going to come before Him to prepare His way. There's one who would come to make His path straight. There would be one who would, a messenger who would come, a forerunner who would call the people to repentance, and His name would be John, is what we're told here in Luke chapter 1. Because we find the fulfillment of the prophecies about Jesus' first arrival and the fulfillment of the prophecy of, of John the Baptist's birth here in Luke chapter 1. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about the forerunner and the founder. Okay, that's the title of this series, right? The founder, Jesus, and his forerunner, John, out of Luke chapter one. So we're going to work our way all the way through Luke one over the next four weeks, looking at this one who would come to prepare the way and the one whose way he would prepare. Okay, you with me so far? Some of you. I lost some of you along the way, but hopefully I'll get you back at some point, all right? So if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 5 and read down through verse 
25 together this morning. Beginning in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, we read these words. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the region of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. Notice how he didn't say she was old. Let that be a lesson to you. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months. She kept herself hidden, saying, thus says the Lord, or thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now listen, church, this, the first Sunday of Advent historically the life of the church has been a Sunday in which we are recalibrated around our hope. Around our hope. Now, hope is something that can be slippery at times in our lives. And I think one of the reasons it can be slippery in our lives is because oftentimes whenever we use that word hope in our vernacular, in our language, in our day and time, we don't use it with the same weight that the Scriptures use it with. Whenever we speak of our hope, we speak of things that we are wishing for, okay? I used to, my, my daughter created a nice little wish list on, sat, on Friday evening when we returned home from seeing family at Thanksgiving, a list of seven things that she wanted for Christmas. And she submitted them very respectfully to her parents, hoping that she would receive something on that list. She's wishing for those things. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it uses it far differently than anything that we would be wishing for. Tell you another story about my daughter. She just comes up a lot, right? Um, but whenever she was two years old, I can remember as she began to be able to formulate words and she began to be able to talk, 
We began to try to teach her how to pray very simple prayers. And so in the evenings, we would sit in, in, in bed with her or lay down next to her and we would pray with her. We're thanking God for the roof over our head, okay? for His provision in our lives, for the food in our bellies, for the things that He has filled us with. And But we think thinking most of all at the end of every prayer for Jesus. And I can remember one night at the end of that time of prayer, we had this little exchange between her and I. She said, Daddy, where is Jesus? And I said, well, baby, He is in heaven with His Daddy. And she said, Daddy, I want to see Jesus. And I said, baby, I want to see Jesus too. And I said, one day we will. One day He's going to return as a king on a big white horse. And when He comes back, He's going to make everything sad become happy. He's going to make everything that is sick become well. He's going to make everything that is bad become good. Everything that is broken become healed. And with all the theological astuteness of a two-year-old, she said, Daddy, I want Jesus to take me on a hayride behind his horse. (laughs) And I thought, she gets it. She gets hope because she's waiting on something, not wishing for something. So when He comes back, not if, maybe, but when He returns. See, that's what hope is, church. It's not wishing for something, but it's waiting for it with a sense of certainty and expectation. There's an anticipation about what's coming in the future that shapes the way that we live in the present. right? But even... Even with a correct view of hope, at times, it can become slippery when God is silent. And listen, in verse 5 of the text that we read this morning, it sets the context for us about this event as it unfolds in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I want you to hear what it says again in verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, now Herod, listen, Herod was, was, a, was a bad dude, okay? He was, not the, the, he was not Caesar, he was not the Roman emperor, but he was a provincial king who ruled over this particular region in which the Israelites lived in the land of Palestine. Right here he's called the king of the Jews. Right? So he's not the Caesar, he's not Augustus, he's not the highest ranking government official, but he's a provincial king. He had some power, he had some clout, he had some authority. Okay, But he's a very, very interesting guy. He's a brilliant guy. He raised tons and tons of money to make all kinds of architectural advances. He built all kinds of palaces and places of worship. He built temples. In fact, the dude built a harbor where there was no harbor in Caesarea. Okay? He did so by inventing quick dry cement. Okay? He imported ash from Italy and sand. He put in boxes and pushed them out on barges into the ocean and dropped them down. And whenever the ash and the sand would mix together with the water, it would form cement. And so he built this massive harbor, which only increased his fame in the ancient world, but not only increased his fame, but it continued to line his pockets. He became very rich. He was a brilliant guy, but he was very evil as well. In fact, he was so evil and paranoid that he eventually kills his own wife and his own sons because he was afraid they were going to plot against him and overthrow him and circumvent his rule. Okay? And later on in life, it's reported that he went kind of crazy. You might think he's already crazy to kill his wife and children. But he went kind of crazy and began to have these delusions and dreams where he'd wake up calling out for his wife in the middle of the night. But he was a very paranoid 
ruler, brilliant, but evil. Okay? He murdered lots and lots of people. So you can imagine in the days of Herod, right? Now, not only was this set, take place in the days of Herod, but it also took place on the heels of 400 years of God's silence. See, in the book of Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet. And it was written 400 years before Luke chapter 1. There were no prophets in those days. There were no words from the Lord in those days. God was not speaking in those days through the prophets as He had before. And so there was silence. And there was not only silence, but there was oppression from external rulers who were governing over them. So there were people in Israel in these days, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, who had begun to lose hope. Had God forgotten about us? Was God abandoning us? Had God ceased to make provision for us? Where is God? He is quiet. He is silent. And everything seems to be stacked against us. Anyone else ever been there? Hope can get slippery at times and run through our fingers for even those who understand that it's not wishing, but it's waiting. But into those days, God speaks. And He teaches us something about Himself. Two things, at least, from this text I want you to see this morning. And the first one is this. That what God shows us about Himself is that He is a providential promise keeper. That God is a providential promise keeper. Now that word providential is a, is a five cent theological term. We might want to break down just a little bit, okay? What is, it, what is God's providence? Okay, that sounds like something you would use in old English, like the Puritans talked about God's providence a lot. They did because I think they had a grasp on it. But what providence is, is this, okay? If you think of the fact that God is sovereign, that He rules, that He governs all of human history, so He's reigning and ruling over everything that transpires, but not only is He sovereign, but He's also good. So that He's kind, He's just, He is righteous, He is good. And if you take the thread of God's sovereignty and the thread of God's goodness and you bring them together and you tie, like tying your shoes, and you form a knot, the knot that is formed between the thread of God's sovereignty and the thread of God's goodness is His providence. That God is governing all of creation. He's governing all of life. All of your life. All of my life. Everything that unfolds in human history. He's governing, governing it for our good. For our good. As He acts out of His goodness. That's what providence is. And God teaches us in Luke chapter 1 that He is a providential, governing everything for our good, promise keeper. He fulfills those things that He has promised. He brings them to pass. He hasn't forgotten about them. He hasn't abandoned them. He hasn't walked away from His people. Now, if you jump down into verse 8 with me in the text, you, you, you find the story as it, as, it, as it continues to unfold. You see that, that Zechariah was a priest serving on duty uh, when his division was on duty. And according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, listen, there were many, many priests in Israel. 
Okay? It wasn't just the Levites that served there in the temple in Jerusalem, but there were many priests who served across the land of Israel in the, some of the smaller synagogues and towns of you know, 50 or 75 people. They had a worshiping community that would come together. They had a priest there. And these priests, that were, they, they, were, they were divided up by divisions. And each, each division would take a turn going to Jerusalem and being on duty there in Jerusalem. And it happens to be that while Zechariah's division is on duty in Jerusalem, they cast lots, and ultimately the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that we may cast a lot, but whose hand directs it? The Lord's. You didn't know, now you know. The Lord's hand directs the dice, okay? The lot as it's cast. And Zechariah goes into the temple. He's selected by God to go into the temple to, 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 to offer up the burnt incense. Now what does incense stand for in the Bible? Stands for our prayers rising up before the Lord. And Zechariah goes in before the altar of incense. The incense is going up. Prayers are going up. Zechariah is praying. The people are gathered outside. They're praying at the hour of incense, right? When the prayers are going up of God's people. So, Zechariah, that's where he's at. That's what's going on here. And what happens is Zechariah is knelt there before the altar of incense. An angel shows up. Not just any angel, a talking angel, right? Big deal. Big deal. Talking angel shows up and begins to speak to Zechariah. And this is what he tells Zechariah. And listen, anytime an angel shows up in the Bible, oftentimes the first words out of their mouth are, do not be afraid. Right? Why? Because it's terrifying to have an angel standing before you. Do not be afraid. And he tells Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer? And we're told back up in verse 7. That though Zechariah and Elizabeth had walked with God, they were in righteousness, blameless, they kept God's commandments, that Elizabeth's womb had not been opened, that she was barren. So you can imagine over the course of the years, and they're well advanced in age. What is that? Not real sure. Okay? Not real sure. But probably in their 70s to 80s at this point. Very advanced in age. Her womb had been closed all of these years. And you can imagine, particularly in their culture where there's no nursing homes, there's no social security, there's no government assistance. Okay, What the people who provided for you in your old age were your children. Particularly your sons who would take you into their home and care for you. They have not that. They're advanced in years. They've been praying for years for God to answer, to open the womb, to give life. And the angel says, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. He says, Zechariah, God has heard you. And he's responding to your prayer. And listen to what he goes on. The, the angel doesn't stop there. And he will have, he, he, he will have joy and glad. You will have joy and gladness. And will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink strong drink. He'd be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Right? So he, takes a, he says, listen, your son John's going to take a Nazarite vow in which he's going to refrain from, abstain from alcohol. He's going to abstain from wine. Right? That's not necessarily for everyone, but for him, he's going to set aside that freedom he might possess in order to serve the Lord more fully. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. God will have anointed him for a particular purpose from the time that he is born. This is what the angel says to Zechariah. And listen, 
He doesn't stop there. In verse 16, he goes on to say, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, that verses 16 and 17 is almost verbatim a quote from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So John the Baptist's birth is prophesied in Malachi 3, 1 and 4, 5 to 6. Listen to what it says in 4, 5 to 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. That's what he's going to do. Israel, whenever this one who comes, this prophet Elijah, who the angel Gabriel says comes, John will come with the spirit and power of Elijah, have a ministry similar to Elijah's, calling the people to repentance, to return to God. There'll be reconciliation in families. The fathers return to the children, the children of the fathers, preparing a people to present to the Lord who would, want, who would then come into the temple. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now, I've got to tell you all that to say, God keeps His promises. He is a faithful promise keeper who works in accordance with His providence to fulfill His purposes. So you can imagine there are people in Israel wondering, has God abandoned us? Has He forgotten about us? And God, through the angel to Zechariah, says no. He is a providential, promise-keeping God. Second thing that we learn about God is this, is that He specializes in making the impossible possible. That's His specialty. He has a PhD, multiple ones, in making the impossible possible. In verses 6 and 7, it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And then you drop down to verse 13. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. Barren. You can imagine, if you think of a visual image here of just a wasteland, a desert. That's what her womb has been all of these years. And the angel shows up and says, God has heard. God is answering. You shall bear a son. I know humanly it doesn't seem possible because of her advanced age and because of her medical history. Not what he would have said, what we would say. Her medical history and her advanced age. But it's going to happen. Now, how does Zechariah respond? Huh. Give me some proof, God. How shall I know this? And Gabriel says, listen. By the way, the angel shows up to you and, and gives you a, a, a promise. Don't say, how shall I know this? Okay? That's not the way to respond. Okay? But listen to how Zechariah responds. For I am old man. My wife is advanced in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Zechariah, you know where I've just come from? In the Holy of Holies. Right? Just inside that curtain over there that you're, you're in front of at the altar of incense, just inside that curtain, that's where I've been 
in God's very presence. I stand in the presence of God and He has sent me. He's dispatched me to you to give you this message. To bring you this good news. You want proof? Other than an angel standing before you at the altar as you pray? Here's your proof, Zechariah. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day in which these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So he says, Zechariah, your mouth will be silenced. You will be mute, unable to speak until John is born. Okay, Until your wife delivers this child that I've promised that God is, 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 is providentially giving to you. Until He comes into the world, you're going to be mute, you're going to be silent, you can't speak. And so, here's the deal. Listen, imagine how big of a deal this is. Because the text goes on to say, the people are gathered outside, they're beginning to wonder what happened. That dude's just supposed to go in, sprinkle some stuff on the altar, say a few prayers, and then come out. And it's been a little while now. So something's going on in there. Right? Like, did he have a heart attack? Right? Imagine an angel showing up, this dude's old, right? Imagine, ah! Right? He's gone. And we go in and retrieve him. But he comes out. He comes out and he is, he, you can imagine, right? He's just, he's, he's just lit up. And he can't speak. He's astonished at what he's just seen and heard. And the people, look, look at what the people do. Right? When he comes out, the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. Now, can you imagine? 400 years. 400 years since Malachi. 400 years of silence. 400 years of no words from the Lord through the prophets. And here out comes this priest who had a vision in the temple as he went to pray. God is up to something. And yet, whenever his time of service is over, he returns home. Perhaps his wife is rejoicing because now she's got a husband for nine months who can't speak. She wins every single argument. Right? But listen, God specializes in making the impossible possible, church. It's the second thing God teaches us about Himself. Now listen, the way Zechariah responds is, as Luke's writing to Theophilus, if you look back up in chapter 1, verse 4, it says he's writing the most excellent Theophilus, perhaps a Roman ruler who was, had lots of clout, social clout, political clout, financial clout. And he says, Theophilus, listen, by the way, we break these texts up or else we, we would spend weeks preaching to them, but they're not intended to be read in isolation because if you read further down, I'm not going to steal too much of Stanley's thunder from next week. But if you read further down, whenever the angel appears to Mary, what does Mary say? Be it done unto me. Right? The servant of the Lord. Okay? And I think what he's trying to show Theophilus is this. Whenever God comes with this good news of the person of Jesus, which is what the Gospel of Luke is about, don't say, how shall I know this, Theophilus? But embrace it. And embrace it like Mary. Don't doubt it like Zechariah. Unless whenever God promises to fulfill His purposes, even whenever His providence seems to be darkened skies, 
hovering over your life, you can know that He is working for your good. Do not doubt that like Zechariah, but embrace it like Mary. That it's good news. It's good news. So God specializes in making the impossible possible. God is a providential, promise-keeping God. So how do we respond to this? Two things this morning, church. First one is this. Is that we need to cling to the Lord in our barrenness. Cling to the Lord in our barrenness. I want you to notice how Zechariah and Elizabeth don't do. Okay, they don't idolize children. They don't idolize the nuclear family. They don't lift that up. Kind of like, listen, that has, that, has, that has been perhaps one of the highest idols of the evangelical mind over the course of the last 50 years, the idolization of family. But they don't do that. Right? They don't say, we're going to take any measures possible in order to obtain a child. In those days, that would look like, like a little something on the side. Okay? Like Abraham and Sarah back in the day. Okay, like going out and committing adultery in order to achieve a child, in order to have a son. They don't do that. Right? Also, they don't, Zechariah doesn't divorce Elizabeth, he doesn't put her away. Listen, in, the, in that day and time, in order, you know, barrenness or infertility was always, sorry ladies, but this is the way that it was, it was always landed squarely on the woman's shoulders. It was always seen to be something wrong in her womb. And so what that allowed was for a man, if the wife could not conceive and bear a child, to put his wife away and go find one who could. Zechariah doesn't do that, but he faithfully loves her. He serves her. He walks alongside of her. He worships God with her. He's obedient to the commands of God. He hasn't committed adultery. They walk with God. They obey God. They cling to God. And they trust in God. Listen, in our times of barrenness, and it may not be, it may be a physical barrenness that God hasn't opened the womb and you want Him to open the womb, but it may be other areas of life in which things have withered and dried up. Let me ask you a question, church. Do you cling to God? In the midst of those times in which things are parched, in which things are dry, in which things are desolate, in which things have become lifeless in your life. Do you cling to God and continue to walk with Him? That's what Elizabeth and Zechariah do. It says they're blameless before God. They're righteous in His sight. They keep His commandments. That's what it means to cling to God. It means you keep walking with Him. It means you keep taking steps to obey Him. What it means is you don't, you don't turn from Him towards something else to medicate yourself because of all the pain and the heartache and the hardship. You don't look to something or someone else to bring you fullness or satisfaction when you're not receiving it, when you're perceiving you're not receiving it from the Lord. But it looks like in your loneliness because there's not someone for you. They don't turn to digital relationships that are fabrications of the mind that excite the body but leave the soul empty. It means that you turn to substances. You say, because of the pain in my life, I'm going to medicate it with a little bit more whiskey or a little bit more rum. I'm just going to keep drinking because I need something 
something to numb this. It looks like you don't turn away and just harbor bitterness and resentment. You say, I know God calls me to forgive, but I just want to wallow in my own self-pity for a season. No, because I've been there. When things get lifeless, when things get dry, when things are barren, you cling to Him. I continue to obey Him. Listen, this providential, promise-keeping God who can make the impossible possible desires for us to to white-knuckle at times through prayers of faith, believing that God will answer either yes or no or later. Not now. But I keep clinging to Him. I keep coming back to Him. I don't look to something else for what I'm asking for from God. The second thing, the second way we ought to respond to this is this, is to trust God to remove our reproach. Trust God to remove our reproach. In verses 24 and 25, it's so powerful. What Luke writes, he says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Listen, for five months after Elizabeth conceived, she stays inside, she stays hidden, she stays concealed, right? She wears two times the size of maternity clothes, so no one can tell what's going on underneath. And she's knitting baby blankets and she's worshiping the Lord. Because he has given life to her womb. He has showered her with blessings. He has has made the impossible possible for her. And for five months, in secret, she continues to worship God and and conceal the pregnancy. And she says, the Lord has looked on me. In other words, the Lord has turned His eyes toward me. He has seen my plight. He has seen my condition. And He has taken action in order to meet my need. He's looked on me. He's turned His attention to me. And He's acted to meet me where I am. And in so doing, it says, He's taken away my reproach among the people. Now listen, church. Here's where it gets good. And that word reproach, okay, it literally means this. It means shame or disgrace. Shame or disgrace. And notice where her shame was coming from. Where her disgrace was coming from. From among the people. Why? Because barrenness in her day was considered a curse of God that something must have happened in her past. She must have done something to deserve God shutting her womb all of these years and locking it up tight. And yet we're told... The text tells us what? That her and Zechariah were blameless. They were righteous. They kept God's commands. They walked with God. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that she never incurred any guilt because of her sin like the rest of us. It doesn't mean that she wasn't a sinner. But what it means is that she had done nothing in order to deserve her room being shut up the way that it had been. That's what we're intended to read here. And yet the people 
are looking upon her with a set of eyes on account of what's happened to her, not based upon anything that she had done to bring that upon herself. And so she bore shame among the people. Because you can imagine what it was like in a little town of 50 to 75 people. Mm, you know what I heard? <laughs> I bet she. Right? And we all know how that thing spreads. And yet God had looked upon her to remove her shame. You see, guilt is something that we incur upon ourselves by what we have done. But shame oftentimes is something that falls upon our shoulders based upon what has been done to us. And listen, whenever God acts to keep His promise to His people to make the impossible possible in Elizabeth's life, He removes the reproach. He removes the shame that she had borne on her shoulders all of those years. All the speculation about what had been said, about what she must have said, about what she must have done in order to bring this judgment of God upon her life. Elizabeth says God has taken that away. He's removed my reproach. He's taken away my shame, my disgrace among the people. And listen, church, the good news of the gospel is that we have a faithful, providential, promise-keeping God who makes the impossible possible. And in so doing, in keeping of His promise and the sending of His Son, He not only deals with our guilt, because some of us have made a mess of our lives. Anybody else testify to that? I've made a mess of my life. And so I have guilt that I've borne, that God has taken away in the sending of His Son. But listen, not only has God done something to deal with our guilt, the things that we have done ourselves, but He's also in the sending of His Son done something to deal with our shame, the things that have been done to us by others. The abusive words that have been spoken to us in our childhood, the abusive touches that we experienced at the hands of those that we trusted He's done something to deal with our shame. Because not... Listen. I don't have much time left. I'm going to see if I can do it. Listen, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, whenever God God commanded there be two lambs brought there to the temple in order order to, to deal with the sins of the people. And upon one, He would... The, the priest would confess the sins of the people. He would, he would confess them over that lamb's head. And then that lamb was slaughtered. And his blood was dripped onto the mercy seat, which sat atop of the Ark of the Covenant. If you want to read about all this, go to Leviticus chapter 16 and read about how the blood sprinkled there on the Ark of the Covenant to deal with the sins of the people, the guilt that they had incurred on account of their rebellion against God. But there was another lamb. And the sins of the people were confessed upon it. And then it was what? It was led outside of the city as the scapegoat to take away the disgrace and the shame of the people out into the wilderness. And listen, church, I want you to know that in the Old Testament they had two. We have one, and His name is Jesus. He both deals with our guilt and our shame, our reproach, our disgrace. Listen, some of us have had our lives defined 
by what other people have said and done to us. And I want you to know this morning that in the same way that Elizabeth said, when the Lord looked on me, that He has looked on you in His Son, and in doing so, He stands ready to take your shame and like a lamb and remove it from your life so that what has happened to you in your past no longer defines you in your present or sets the trajectory for your future. That was for somebody this morning. I don't know who, but for somebody. So cling to Him in your barrenness and trust Him to remove your reproach. Because He can make what seems impossible in your life possible as He keeps His promises and exercises His providence. There's more here. That's all we got time for. Listen, this morning, church, if you need somebody to pray with you, as you try to cling to God in the midst of your own lifeless, barren situation, be happy to do that. I'll be at the back at the info desk. Love to pray with you. If you need somebody to just talk to, pull aside one of our elders. Steve's here. Stanley's here. They would love to pray with you. They would love to counsel with you. They would love to talk with you and encourage you. Don't walk away. Don't walk away wallowing in your shame. Don't walk away. Don't walk away with your hands weak from hanging on to the promises of God in your life. Let us, let us lift them in the same way that Aaron did with Moses as you continue to fight to trust Him. Let's pray together.